Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Ginger Birkenbuehl. And I'm Esther Ikoro. And we're the hosts of the Honest Field Guide podcast. Entrepreneurship is no joke. The journey is full of anticipation, failure, hope, and disappointment. You'll make money and be totally broke at the same time. The Honest Field Guide podcast tells you the truth. We know being an entrepreneur is crazy hard and you will sometimes cry dinner. Listen in to be inspired, laugh, and learn how to really thrive on your business journey. Jim Powers is co-founder, creator, and developer of Parse Rum, named Best Rum, Best Aged Rum, and Best of Show at both the 2015 San Francisco and 2018 New York World Spirits competitions. Parse Rum is known for its strong advocacy of the environment and responsible for planting over 30,000 native species trees in the village of Santuario, Colombia, using profits from every bottle of Parse sold. Jim also started the record company Minty Fresh in 1993, introducing bands such as Veruca Salt and the Cardigans to the world. The label also released pioneer female rock musician Liz Fair's debut album and other Chicago bands that included the Aluminum Group and Papas Fritas. Prior to Minty Fresh, he was an international A&R rep at Geffen Records and BMG, where he discovered and signed Cowboy Junkies, among others. So we're sitting here talking to Jim Powers. I met Jim many, many years ago, and it was when my husband and I were first married, and we had decided that we were going to form a band, and we formed a band, and we made a demo record um, with our band Utah Carol, and we released the demo record in Chicago, and we were right next door to Wishbone Restaurant, and we put the demo out, and we sent it out to a bunch of labels, and one of the labels that we sent our demo to is called Minty Fresh, and the reason that this demo went to Minty Fresh is because I love the name. Minty Fresh. It's a great name. It was so cool. And I was like, this looks like a cool company, Minty Fresh. <laughs> and, um, you know, we sent that we sent the demo out and we had no idea what we were doing. We were very, very young. Sure. Didn't know what was going on. But we got a call from Minty Fresh. And I remember I, I said to Grant, I said, oh, my gosh, there's a label that wants to talk and meet with us about our music. We didn't get signed by Minty Fresh. Mm. However... We had a conversation with you that I'll never forget. You were giving us ideas and advice and telling us about the industry. And you were like a mentor to us. We we were like, we didn't have any idea what was going on. We're both in corporate America working day jobs. And, sure. You know what I mean? And I, I will never forget sort of the, the care and the, the generosity of that meeting. And, That's very kind of you to say. And well, you know, consider this. We also sent our record to other places and we got incredible amount of rejection letters and nobody told us why or nobody sure. nobody said nobody gave us any information but you took the time to talk to us and and I feel like that to me showed that you had a love of and a, a pride in your work and of course I was a business person at the time and I thought well this is actually a pretty good business conversation I'm like I love this this is well I, I do know. remember you had that affinity and you understood the business side so you asked a lot of good questions so there was a lot that I could respond to which yeah, was great yeah. and again it all was predicated on the fact that you you had really I, I recall you just you guys had a really nice melodic sensibility and mm -hmm. it was really engaging music oh, thank you yes it's true <laughs> and so uh, it, it made sense you know we I really do like uh, mentoring and supporting artists that you know are uh, are exhibiting that kind of potential and then also you know uh, want to learn so that's really cool so where did that come from? What was your transformation from school to then ending up in London with no place to live, with a suitcase, <laughs> getting a job, working sure, somewhere sure. as someone's assistant? At that point in my life, I, I, I had originally was going to school thinking maybe pre-law or journalism. I enjoyed writing, maybe creative writing. I just was kind of all over the place in the more liberal arts side of things. But nothing was really clicking. And, and then, you know, kind of midway through college – not an uncommon thing, but you started realizing, you know, none of this is working for me. Like, I have no idea what I want to do. I just know none of this is appealing to me. But what I realized was 
on the music side, I just was spending more and more time with that. And it was kind of a default, like, okay, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do that. Scratching things off the list. And so I said, I was just going to, you know, step back, take a little time and see where things go. And it just kind of uh, lent itself towards following something that I was deeply passionate about. And I feel very fortunate to have gone that route. It ended up working out. And, um, but it was really more like that. You know, the traditional path wasn't working for me. And, um, and that was a long time ago, though, too. It was a long time ago. Yeah. Then the word entrepreneurship did not exist. Right, and, right. And there definitely was a determined path for many people. Yes. You did not take that path. What I found is is I tend to go with my gut, tend to find some opportunities that interest me at the time. But I do tend to revert to uh, I naturally is starting my own thing. And, and I think I feel uh, a real sense of accomplishment when it's your own thing. You know, you feel very direct. I mean, I, I did A&R BMG International for uh, a number of years, which was a fantastic opportunity, and I loved it. But after a few years there, I realized that I wanted to, I just had this need to kind of put your own stamp on something. That was in New York. I decided to move back to Chicago to start a label. Just thought, oh, I'll dabble, and I'll just make a couple of seven inches just to get the ball rolling. And I just enjoyed every step of the process, you know, coming up with the name, getting a little logo. All these little things were just so fun. You know, then you get your first your first order of seven inches arrive, you know, from UPS or whatever, and you take them out, and, you know, it's your vinyl, it's your logo, it's everything, and, of course, it's a band you believe in, and it's just very, uh, very satisfying. What time frame was that when that was happening? That would have been 91 to 93, maybe. So, 91 to 93. Yeah. How, the independent record label movement was happening then? Or, I mean, were you well, sort of it, one it, of the first out the gate in Chicago? Or what was going on? Well, it actually, it, it was happening, but it was all at such a small level. Like, there were a lot of creative people doing some really amazing things. But I had a house but I had uh, I rented out the first floor, and then the second floor I lived on, and then the back room, back bedroom of my house, was the record company. And at the time, it was a, you know, I had a Mac and a fax machine and a phone, and that was it, right? That was the fax label, machine. right? I know, fact, it was that's it was that era. Remember what faxes are? You could find independent distribution networks and think people to take your records, but it's really very underground, you know, and there really hadn't been the the indie labels um, getting much notoriety yet, you know? And then um, I think, like, for example, when, well, there was Matador, Sub Pop, Thrill Jockey here in Chicago. There were some cool, cool things going on. So the cool things, did you see them and you were able to model after them? Because a lot of times people have trouble creating something that they haven't seen before. I'm trying to understand the landscape yeah. that made you decide I am going to open my own company. I'm an entrepreneur. Sure. As far as the roadmap, I think, yeah, I, I think just in general, the great way to learn is see see what, what is out there that you like, what inspires you, and then um, you know learn from those type of companies. And I had relationships with a lot of them, so I would speak with people and get, get tips and, you know, hey, where do you get your vinyl made? You know, basic questions, just just nuts and bolts kinds of things. And people generally were very supportive about that. So, you know, how much do you pay for your vinyl? You know, you get a framework of how much things are going to cost, um, how much you're going to sell them for. And then what's important on that side is, is it, the next question is anyone going to be interested in what I've produced, right? You, you can make this vinyl, looks great, you love it. But if there's no distributor that wants to put it out, you're stuck with a, a thousand coasters, basically. So when you opened Mini Fresh, yeah. um, you had the name. Yes. You created the branding. Mm -hmm. You were alone? I was alone in terms of, you know, the, the financing and running it, all that good stuff. But I did have this kid at the time who interned with me, a guy named Anthony Musiala. And uh, he uh, was interning and then uh, ended up, you know, working with me. And so he's been an integral part of Minty Fresh since the beginning. So it was Anthony and I, basically. People did not understand um, when we decided to not go after labels. They were so confused with that. And I, but I realized, because I'm a business person, I'm in marketing, mm -hmm. I thought, I don't need the label. Right. I can do this myself. So yes. I don't think that the way I approached the business then was typical because I had a business background. Yes. What has changed from when you started Minty Fresh 
to where things are today with artists? Because I think there's more of me now. I think you're right. Uh, I, largely, that's due to obviously the the whole digital revolution and and the fact that now the tools are available to anyone to create and distribute their own music. And that really wasn't the case. It it involved a lot more capital back in, in the early '90s, right? Because and capital is its own filter. When something was on vinyl and you saw it in a record shop, it kind of meant something. Why? Because someone somewhere thought this was interesting enough to put in a few thousand dollars, right, if you look at just getting the vinyl out. And those were barriers. And so someone, you know, to, to have that in a shelf meant it gone through a few gates before it hit your ears. Because at that time you had to go to a studio, right? You had to go get it mastered somewhere, Um make the vinyl, et cetera, et cetera. So that was where we were at at that time. And you're right. You were unusual in the sense that you had a business sensibility and the creative the creative side. Um, you know, that's not the normal makeup, I'd say, of most artists I speak to. But Even uh, today? Uh, yeah, even today. I mean, what I think is, you know, to, to answer that first part for you, I, I think that uh, – now that you can have, you know, there's you've got a, a Pro Tools world or Logic or uh, Ableton. There, there's so many ways that you can directly create. You can, you know, put up egg cartons on your walls and have little baffles to make it, you know, a, a mixing room if you like. And then once you once you've created your music, you can, you know, push of a button in a SoundCloud world, you can distribute around the world. So that's incredible, incredible opportunity for exposure. So you have the means to create and you have the means to distribute. And that's great. Uh, as I've said many times on you know seminars or whatever else, the the good news is anybody can create, anybody can has the vehicle to express themselves, and that's fantastic. From a professional standpoint, the bad news is anybody can create and anyone can put something out, because once you've put your music out, you're now competing against everybody else's bedroom recording, right? Um, so someone's got to you know help guide you to the top of that hundred thousand band pipe, if you will. And it's probably a million band pipe. And most artists, as you know, uh, prefer to create. Uh, they want to expose their music. There's only so much time in the day. And getting a format and a structure, a path to getting your music known is laborious. It takes a lot of time. It does take some money. And it takes, I, I mean, I think that having a bit of expertise helps because it's its own, it's its own path. And to be able to have that creative genius to make works of art that really compel people and drive people, yet also have that deep acumen for getting something heard and going through the hurdles of media and touring and, and timing, coordinating everything, that is a lot of work. I mean, we did that. Sure. But I'm not normal. You are not normal. So here's a question. Sure. <laughs> I see in the visual art world, and Esther and I talk about this all the time, mm -hmm. there's people that have um, superpowers around um, spreading their information okay, and using all the tools available and building their communities. So when their you say superpowers, what do you mean by superpowers? Well, they're confident. They're not afraid. They operate at high volumes. Right. They are very savvy mm -hmm. um, with conversations, creating content, things like that. However... Sure. Maybe the product isn't as great, but they sure are getting the money and the attention. Um, how do you feel mm, I get... about music in that space? Yeah. I mean, are there people now that can actually make a killing at music, but their product sucks? Wow. Uh, that's a really subjective question, of course, right, in terms of, well, what, what sucks, what doesn't is subjective. I mean, you could say there's a lot of music that's that's not very appealing to me that can do quite well, but I have to respect the fact that what they're doing speaks to somebody, and that's great, you know. But what I find with artists is um, you have a talented tenacity line. I look at it as a line. And you'll have some artists that can be 90% on the talent side. I mean, they are amazing, amazing artists, truly gifted. But maybe there's only 10% tenacity, right? You've got that sense of uh, sensitivity. Uh, you know, you get tired of getting doors slammed in your face. Maybe in some ways, to be honest, maybe some are kind of lazy, right? Like they don't want to go out and work their stuff. They just want to continue to create. And that's fine. But you need to know your own temperament and really know yourself to know whether you have that, that aptitude to go professionally. Otherwise, you have a really nice hobby. And that's a great hobby. And it's very meaningful. And that, but that's its own thing. So you really want clarity 
on who you are in that process. Now, on the other side of that sliding scale, you've got some artists that are 90% tenacity and 10% talent, right? But they hustle so hard and they come from a scene where maybe it's about being seen and being known and maybe they tap into trends in pop culture and there's other ways of having some kind of perceived coolness, right? And you can find an audience with that too. And maybe the talent's kind of minimal, but you're a connector, you know, to put people together, you build a community around you. That doesn't tend to be my kind of music. I mean, I just don't, I respect that they have that, but it doesn't speak to me. You know, it's interesting. Um, you know, I think about all this and, you know, we decided very early on um, when the technology space hit that we were going to be in the technology space. And so sure. we took a completely different direction with our music and went after um, music licensing and right. films and advertising and things like that. And that's sure. actually where we've made a tremendous amount of revenue with the band. Yes. Um, but that took a huge amount of business savvy to make that happen. Right. Today, I look at artists. I have a hard time making a case for a young artist, specifically a young artist sure. in the business, to not make a go of it independently before going after a label. I feel like because the tools are available now, sure. they need to learn what's happening and they need to know what's required. Yeah. And then they can say, you know what, now that I know what I know, I'm out. I'm going to get a label. I completely agree with what you just said. I encourage bands to have that self-knowledge and to, to get things started themselves. In fact, you know, artists today, um, you know, it used to be we get a demo, you see the band, they go, okay, well, now I need this, I need that. And, you know, they'd want you to help build an audience from ground zero. But now... You know, if I'm going to sign someone, there are metrics you can look at. Okay, I really like, first of all, I have to really love the music, right? That's rule one. Then you got, want to get some sense of whether anybody else likes their music, right? So then you now you have ways to check that out. So you can go to your, you know, you, you, do they have a video? Do they have YouTube? Do they have, you know, all SoundCloud, et cetera, whatever you want to say. So that helps you kind of play it a little safer because we have to love it, but we have to know that someone else is going to like it. And B, what's more important is we need to know that they have the work ethic to go out and make things happen. You know, they have to know that they understand that they have to do some heavy lifting to succeed, right? And that's that's an issue. So what's the heavy lifting? Well, the heavy lifting is touring. It's, it's going out and showing that, you know, you've uh, got some social media going. You have the little left brain, right brain going together, right? You can't just be creative for creativity's sake and make a go of it. Do you understand? Yeah, I do, but I so, don't know how you can see that with a musician. I mean, you well, can I think see you can that see with it. a visual artist. I think you can see it by these metrics, right? You can simply go to, have they made a video? Are they on SoundCloud? And do they have a community, right? Are there people chatting with them on Instagram? You know, the, these are real things. It's not just, you're not guessing. And so to what you said, I agree with you. A band, and we would encourage that, any band should go as far as they can. We get a lot of questions. Well, do I need a manager? When do I get an agent? When do I whatever? You'll know when you need that. If you're asking the question, you don't need it yet, right? You know when you're so buried, you're so buried with time that you have to uh, have someone else help. So you need to grow to that point on your own. So you're a business person. You're a business owner. You've been an entrepreneur for a long time. And I do. Right. we're going to get to talking about your new venture. Sure. Um, when you're looking at musicians or, or, or bands, or even when you're thinking about other people in the music business and other labels, yeah. are you looking for entrepreneurs? And do you think musicians have to be entrepreneurs? I think the most successful ones are. Have um, you always felt that way? Or this is because of the transformation of the industry? Mm, that's a really good question. When I use the definition of entrepreneur in the artist sense, mm -hmm. I think I mean the ability to to put in time and effort without the guarantee of upside or reward, which is risk. I think the artists these days have a have a risk in in making things happen because they need to build more of their own time and energies realizing their vision before I think they they get going with a record company. I think, um, and to me, that's entrepreneurial. I think uh, uh, particularly, you know, the you've got the, the leader of a band versus the side people in a band, right? And sometimes everyone's an equal creator in the band. 
usually I find just one or two people that kind of are the heart of one of these things and they bring in other pieces of the puzzle. I think anyone who, quote, leads a band or got to start is very much an entrepreneur. When it comes to labels, would you start a label now, knowing what you know now in today's environment? I would need to know how you're going to make a living at it. And for example, you know, Minty Fresh has evolved. We, we are really so much more about licensing music, kind of like yourself, it's about placing music in film, ads, television shows, that kind of thing, is, is because it's consistent income, provided you get X amount of sinks a year. But it's, it's much more stable than, than relying on, on sales of physical music because it it's not happening anymore, aside from vinyl. So as far as Minty Fresh is concerned, yeah. back then you were focused on artist development and finding talent and finding artists, but yes. but now the label is mostly on licensing, and so that must be back catalog, which means you established a huge yes. repertoire of music and albums, and now you're able to yes. keep pushing it out? Or We used to invest um, a significant amount of money in building a career. We would be looking at ourselves as, as uh, finding some music that inspired us, uh, really uh, clicking with the artist and taking them from, you know, kind of ground zero all the way through, you know, um, reaching as many people that would like their music as possible. That's expensive and that takes time. And in exchange for doing that, we would then want, you know, a multi-record deal, right? You invest the money, you get things started, you want to get enough back that you, you have a, an upside. Now we have changed because what happened then was you would when you had an artist that clicked, you know, let's say you'd get uh, X amount of income, right, and that's your payback. Well, that was all through sale of at the time CDs, right? You still had the risk, but all of a sudden in a post MP3, um, Napster, blah 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 world, boom, your your upside is like cut by eighty percent or seventy percent. So. You couldn't invest that same amount of money and then realize that uh, there's no the upside was gone, and then you have to also subsidize the bands that don't make enough money to to pay back, uh, and that's normal. Most bands do not make money. Yeah, so now we go more song by song. Uh, we'll place a, a, a sync, and we'll put some albums out, but it's usually a one-off, one-record deal, and we'll put out some vinyl, get that kind of thing going. But we've we've had to change our model. I mean, you had a pretty tremendous catalog, right? I mean, name some of the bands that um, you had in your catalog, and I imagine they're still part of your catalog. We signed uh, the Cardigans. We did their first two albums in America, and they, of course, did very well with uh, the single, the single Love Fool, which uh, really catapulted their catalog. We signed a band called Veruca Salt, and we did, uh, they had a single called Seether, which did well, and and that album did very well for us. On the on just the smaller side, we did a little seven inch with Liz Fair. It was one of her earlier singles, which was just fun aluminum thing to group. do. And then the aluminum group, we yeah, just uh, yeah, oh John and Frank so are great. great. Yeah, they're really talented guys. Mm -hmm. So we, um, yeah, we we have a, a fair amount of catalog, and then we also are building it with some of these, you know, these smaller deals too, these song deals. Four My question around Minty Fresh is, you didn't scale the company right. and make it huge. Right. I think a reason for that, honestly, was uh, I think we're happiest as a little research and development almost. You know, we just like making cool stuff that we're really passionate about. But but myself, in terms of, you know, getting into uh, running, the you know, a multi-level company, and all this, which is all wonderful, but... It just was kind of getting away from what, what was really exciting at the time, which was let's just keep making cool stuff, and then let's find people. You know, We would outsource, for example, a radio promotion or a publicist, and you could find third parties to handle all of that. So it allowed us to kind of keep focused on what we were best at and then coordinate with those outside companies. So it kind of kept us out of the management side of things within the company, and I, I kind of liked that. And then actually at a point where we were really kind of going to go to the next level, um, I, I uh, 
had an illness that took me out of commission for a couple of years. So I uh, um, was uh, dealing with that and then recovering from that. Fully recovered, all good. But that was at a time when, you know, it would have been that, that perfect time to kind of vault forward. So we had about a two-year sabbatical. And then by then, you know, as I was back on my feet and moving, we had the, uh, you know, there was the Napster MP3 thing. So I was like, okay, the world has changed. Where are we? Where are we going? I love this because when we talk to small business owners, we a lot of times try to figure out how do you create a business that's a little more automated so that when things do happen, because when you're an, when you're an independent business owner, yes, everything is on you. So if something goes wrong, yes. then the whole thing could collapse. That is so um, true. And you know, when you figure this out, you can then make changes for the next time and the next thing and the next iteration of whatever you're building so that you can realize to protect yourself more. Now you do have a partner. Yeah, I have to say props to Anthony because he he picked up the heavy the heavy load during that period. And so the label stayed open, but we weren't really in a growth pattern by any means. And he did a great job. It was fantastic. You're mm-hmm. right. You need someone kind of uh keeping keeping the ship on course. I feel with myself when I think about my own company, Burke Creative, when I start considering partnership and things mm-hmm. like that, it really becomes related to what you just talked about how will the company you know keep going forward right you know if i decide to change or if i decide you know something happens or sure. you know maybe one of my kids says mom i want to run the company i don't know i mean yeah, sure. you, know, you think about this a lot um, but i also believe that like you said i like to make cool things too right and the bigger i get the harder it is for me to make those cool things. I am much farther away from creation yes. with my company than I was when I started, when sure. I opened it up in 1997. I'm so far away from that now. Right. That when I do have an opportunity to really, really super create, yes. I go all in on it. Yeah. You know, to make but, it But you know, happen. what I see in Burke Creative, though, is it's, it's neat to see that your expression is your company, right? You're expressing yourself still tremendously, right? And it's still your, your identity. It's just uh, steered in a variety of ways, right? It's not simply just making, you know, sonic projects or audio things. And I like that. And that's a good lead to talk about your next venture. So Minty Fresh is still your identity. And the thing is, when I saw you recently, because we came across each other at a private party, um, I had no, all I know is Jim Powers Minty Fresh. I mean, that to me is your brand identity, which I think is beautiful. Sure. Thank you. Um, So how did you use Minty Fresh to inform your next business venture, and why don't you talk about that next business venture? Sure, totally left field thing, but um, I went down to Colombia, the country Colombia, down to Medellin. I have a brother who lives in Medellin, and uh, just completely fell in love with the country, uh, the people, the the beauty of the country itself. Incredibly uh, kind people, so um, we're really taken with it and inspired by it. And um, our father had passed away, maybe if few months before that and so he was an entrepreneur he had his own business eventually and he i think he always wanted his sons to do something together so you know we're sitting there in columbia and uh talking about our father and then also just kind of talking about how we were blown away we were by columbia the columbia we are experiencing is very different than the columbia that most americans would know via media right i mean everyone knows columbia's past and and there's still challenges the same way they're in chicago frankly what can we do to be a bridge between the Columbia of today and the rest of the world? So it was very exciting. It was kind of a neat thing to go, okay, how can we communicate this? Uh, what kind of business will we start? Um, I was all for doing something that you can't digitize after my music you know, uh, experience. So we talked about different products in Colombia, and the one thing all three of us could agree upon was rum, was a spirit. You know, We, we thought about leather. We thought about silver, you know, things that Colombia are, are known for, flowers. But nothing kind of did it for us until we were all sitting there with drinks in our hands. Oh, this is good rum. Yeah, let's try something like that. So literally, that was the vehicle. Just left field. I'm sorry. You're you're sitting around drinking rum. You're like, and you're in Columbia. You're like, yeah, let's start a rum company. That was exactly it. It was totally left field. But there were a couple things I liked about it. One was it was a model I felt I could understand. And ironically, there's some real parallels to the music industry, and, I, and I'll tell you why. The, uh, the music industry, traditionally, you had your three or four or five major companies, right? Your Warner Brothers, your Sony, your Universal. Then you've got all these smaller kind of interesting labels that are out developing interesting, cool new things, right? 
kind of almost like I said earlier, little R&D things, making interesting, interesting stuff. So in the spirits industry, you've got uh, like a Diageo, Pernod Ricard, um, Bacardi. Uh, you just have a few of these major uh, distributors in the spirits industry. And then you have people that are kind of creating and building their own little things uh, and then, you know, taking them up to a certain point. And then if they if they catch on, then uh, you can align with one of these bigger companies and they can handle the heavy investment to get it going. So there was that kind of parallel in terms of the business model. There was the kind of association with nightlife. You know, again, it's clearly, you know, uh, there's there's a little overlap there. So I felt I kind of understood it. And um Set down to kind of doing a little R&D in the spirit side. So what's the company called? And just tell me a little bit about the story, because you do something really awesome, which is help fight deforestation in Colombia. So yes. how did that aspect of the branding and the identity come, come about? The rum is called Parse. And we spent about a year working on names, as I'm sure many people relate to, you know, Trademarks that are free of trademarks that are, you know, don't have copyright issues, all those kinds of things. Because name, you know, I think is really important. And it's fun, and you wanted something that really felt represented our values. So um, we ended up finding this the, the, the name Parse, P-A-R-C-E. And what I love about Parse was Parse is Medellin street slang for friend. Like, hey, Parse, que pasa, hey, Parse, let's go, let's go get a drink, whatever, right? So what I loved about that was, you know, I, I really feel like like what, what Parse really is about is at its core is, is about it's about embodying friendship, relationships. Um, it's about not having an attitude. Uh, the spirits industry, particularly in, in Colombia, but also in America, it's very aspirational. It's very much about trying to be kind of a velvet rope, more, I think, elitist kind of thing when you get into top spirits. So I really like great spirits, but that's not my kind of thing. I like something that's you know, open, that's that's really uh, available for people. So absolute top quality, but without the pretense. So we felt Parse kind of captured that. And the word friend to me meant like, okay, friend to the person you're having uh, Parse rum with, right? Friends to friends between countries, Colombia and the rest of Latin America or the rest of the world. And then also friend to the earth, right? And so with friend of the earth, that uh, was really, uh, I was really inspired by, by Tom Shoes. Uh, I love their buy a pair of shoes, give a pair of shoes campaign. And I thought that was such a great idea. Um, so, uh, you know, I wanted to emulate something like that. What can we do that's tangible for people? So we uh, we started this one bottle, one tree campaign for, for every bottle of Parse purchased, we would plant a tree in Colombia. And we aligned with a social agency in Colombia. It took about, you know, a few months of work to kind of find the right party. They were able to connect us with a village that had overforested and really needed some some trees to kind of restart their their natural spring water there because it had been all polluted because of all the uh, trees removed. So that did it. We've planted like thirty thousand trees so far, um, and we've got you know many more on the way, and it's it's going really well. And honestly, that's kind of the most exciting thing for me. I mean, obviously, we we I love it when people love the rum, and I will say we Parse won the San Francisco World Spirits Competition in two thousand and fifteen, best rum, best age rum, best of show. 169 different spirits tasted by top bartenders and chefs. Number one, blind tasting. We're very proud of that. And then we also won the New York World Spirits competition, best age rum, best rum. So I really feel that the quality is there, and we're very proud of that. I really want to deliver something we believe in that's really good. And then we also couple that with, you know, just a bigger thing, which is uh, introducing what's going on in Colombia now, trying to get that kind of vibe out. So that's kind of the deal. How quickly did it take for you to learn this industry? This is the alcohol industry. I mean, and we're in Illinois. Right. So we have very strict rules around distribution of yes. liquor. Yes. And you're in Colombia. I mean, yes. I'm trying to figure out like, oh my God, Minty Fresh. I know you had some lessons, but dang. <laughs> right. I mean, talk about being brave. We just had an idea that you get excited about and then before you know it, you're in it. <laughs> right? <laughs> I and, mean, I'm just like, that is the nature of entrepreneurship. You're just like, and, and what happened? And then once you're in it and you realize all the complexities and yes, mm -hmm. the, the alcohol business is incredibly complicated. But by then you're in, right? You're in like, okay, I knew this is gonna every every project every has its rough spots and this is gonna be some of those there, which is heavy regulation, import export, blah, 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 that so kind of thing. What where are you distributing 
per we are, se. We are uh, right now available in Illinois, New York, Florida, California, Texas. But w- what we're finding is in Latin America, it's just taking off. Like we're in Colombia, Ecuador, Peru, Costa Rica, Bolivia, Mexico, soon to be in Chile. Uh, it's just got its natural. The thing with rum in Latin America is it's like whiskey in America, right? You don't. There's no explanation. You know, oh, I've got a great rum. Oh, really? Boom. Pour it, drink it, done, right? But Americans are still getting to know high-quality rum. Like most Americans, you think of like your a bad spring break experience, right? Or something that when you were in university, you'd mix in with a bunch of juices to try and mask the fact that there was any alcohol in it. So rum has a bit of a – there's a bit of an education curve in the States because top-quality rum is amazing, right? It's just like a very fine whiskey, bourbon, very fine tequila or mezcal. But Americans' rum is just – it's just getting the ball rolling where people are starting to experience that. So you're explaining what a, what a premium rum is to Americans. So you wanted to have a business that was non-digitized, but you're sharing information that in my business, this is a digitized experience. I mean, you're building community online. Yes. And you're educating people online. Yes. And you're doing work in social media. You know, Very you- true. Yeah. I mean, when I say, you know, non-digitized, I'm talking about the physical product, obviously, but the dependence on, on the digital world is is extreme. I mean, you must acknowledge it. And it's a fantastic tool, right? I mean, it really is. Um, so, yeah, we, we've got about, I think, 12,000 people about on Instagram. We now are available as a product on some uh, digital uh, stores, you might say. And our website, you know, is... is rolling we, we get a lot of uh, people checking that out and we have some videos on YouTube so yeah we're, we're totally tied in with all of that of course so the alcohol industry is as old as time I like to say and it feels very oversaturated I know when I go in the alcohol section of any store there's a wall full of bottles a wall full of logos a wall full of seemingly stories what was your approach at the company to standing out as a new company that's that's an excellent question we know we can't outspend any of these these mega companies right we're, we're gonna lose that that's not gonna happen but what we can do is build relationships and also because we're in the ultra premium sector we are going to reach people. We're not going to talk anybody into liking our product. That's not our deal. Our deal is presenting it to people with discerning taste and putting it down on their on their bar and going, hey, try this. And that's all we do. Try it. Um, if they want to know more about the story, we're happy to go into it. But we know we've got a really fantastic product, and let's lead with that. And let's have those that are not going to be talked into liking something, comment on it. And then once, and sure enough, you know, fortunately, many of those people have really embraced Parse. So that involves a lot of going to mixologists, bars, you know, the restaurants where they, they have the finer kinds of spirits and things. So by getting that word of mouth going and also using our scarcity as a virtue, right? We don't have massive production. We roll it as we we're building slowly. So we can't be everywhere at once anyway. We can't scale that. So we really try to um, decide where we're going to go with people who curate what they have. And then they, they naturally talk about quality. When they run into something good, a conversation starts. That's our phase one. The bottle yes. is beautiful. Thank you. When we work with entrepreneurs across the country, the one thing that I notice, because I'm a brand strategist, sure, the ideas around coming up with beautiful bottles, labels, designs, packaging – Who's going to make it? How do I shape it? Should I patent it? What was your process in developing this bottle? It took about 18 months to uh, get a final design and name down. I know some very talented people, designers and things, and uh, worked with someone who I've known for for years who's an extremely talented guy. Mike Renault, actually, is his name. And uh, so we got together and just did a deep dive into... What's the name Parse? What's that all about? What kind of vibe do we want? And something that, that I wanted was I wanted a kind of tactile sensation where I wanted glass embossing. I wanted embossed glass, and I wanted it to be something that looked like it washed up on a beach, like uh, an old apothecary bottle from the early 1900s that you'd find. You know, it's to have that kind of character. It's not flashy at all, but it suggests some kind of uh, weight. You know, like there's some kind of... Uh, 
weight or feel to it. So I love the feeling of that. And we also wanted something that was minimalist because I wanted to highlight the, so people really saw the rum. And then I talked to a lot of bartenders, okay? We take our prototype out. How do they like it? How's it fit in their hand? How easy is it for them to pour? You know, bartenders, it's all about moving drinks, right? And if something's hard to grip or it can slip out of your hands, and then it has to look great on the shelf. So we would take the bottle out at night to different clubs with different lighting and have them put it up. You know, can you read it? Can you see the label? Can How does it pop against everything else at that bar? So a lot of R&D. And what about the, the cap? I had this thing about it had to be a wooden top, and I wanted the number, the age statement on the top because I felt like, uh, you know, I just love this concept of going to a liquor store or going anywhere and seeing a row of these bottles with with this row of these numbers on the top of the bottle. No one, to my knowledge, I didn't see anybody doing that. I thought we could have fun with it, and I also thought we could have add a Colombian character to that dimension. So Mike and I were down in Colombia. We took, like, thousands of photos. A lot of signs there in villages are still hand-painted, so we would take that style and put that on, on the top. And the reception of that's been great. I love that touch. Is the bottle um, design patented or trademarked? Yes. As a matter of fact, it's uh, we've, we've got the... Uh, the trademark, and then we have the uh, the patent as a as a three D sculpture. Our bottles are under patent as a three dimensional sculpture. So all the stuff that you're doing um, specifically around the intellectual property space, um, yeah. when we talk to entrepreneurs, nobody thinks about this in advance. I mean, people get their stuff stolen all the time. Right. Talk about how you understood to do this. Was this because you had a brand relationship? It's like publishing. Right? We have a publishing company as well, and it's about you know, the value of ideas and the fact that you need to protect your ideas if you're going to drive revenue from them. First thing I had to do was uh, go to Google, drop in the name, get 99 of them knocked out because somewhere someone had that, right? And also go to USPTO.gov, right? And check it out with the trademark uh, engine there. And if you got through those two hurdles, then we go to the next step. You're building a brand. You're building a great spirit, but you're building a brand. And what is a brand? It's an idea. So very keen on protecting ideas. What things have you done that have totally not worked out? I came up with an app called Ears Collective. and Oh, my gosh. I remember that. Do you really? I do. <laughs> I absolutely do remember Ears Collective. Wow. Well, I tell you, what we did was we would put five songs a week out. And people could hear them, and they would, they would have to rank those five songs one to five. And then you had a couple of algorithms tied in with that. One was based on, you know, can you guess which one most of the other people are going to like? And then also, which one is your favorite? So it literally is that A&R thing where you're thinking about, okay, what's my taste and what's the public's taste, and do they jive, right? So it was all testing really well and had a lot of fun with it. And then, you know, we were going to run it through iTunes, of course. And... uh we go through the whole Apple process, approvals, all done. But then what we realized was Apple had this policy. We realized we were going to need to run these songs by Apple every week. There's no way in hell that, <laughs> that was going to oh happen. Oh, my gosh. So no we, thought, we thought that once we had the API, we could load in the songs and because the, the app was approved. And then at the very the 11th hour, like, oh, yeah, the music. Yeah, no, you can't do that. You know, I listen to you talk, Jim. Yeah. I'm thinking to myself, wow, you know, there's a whole world out there of people doing great things that are making money and living passionately, but they're not visible. And I want to know why to me do you seem so under the radar? You know, in today's environment, I don't it's hard for me to understand how to build a brand unless you actually do put a face behind the brand. To be honest with you, I'm still kind of learning about that. I think for myself, I've looked at every project as the brand in a way, and I'm happy to kind of be behind the scenes and, and do what I do. That's great. Uh, that's very satisfying for me. Um, but you do realize that you know you need to be a little more, I think, in the forefront with what you do in, in the current environment where, um, especially on the entrepreneurial side, that's kind of your currency in a way. You know, it's kind of how you're known. And if you're going to keep hopping from different things out of habit, yeah, the more you're known in the right circles, the the easier it is for some of your projects. So that's a really good point. If I saw your bottle on the shelf, yes. I would never imagine that it was you and your family. I would automatically assume this is a Seagram's brand. Really? Well, I mean, yeah, because um, that they're big companies and there are no faces except the CEO. But in today's environment, from the work that we've been doing across the country, 
um, and the work that my agency does, when you have a company like yours, mm-hmm. it is always helpful and amazing and it sells the brand when you know the humanity behind the company Mm. right i know you're saying you're learning about this right um i just think it's important to step up and 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 rise up and and put yourself out there more and if you can't do it find someone that can that can help craft stories for you yes because now that i know what i know Mm -hmm. why in the world would i buy any other rum but yours well that's really nice of you to say i mean i I, but it's not a nice thing it it is the thing (laughs) It is the thing. It's not. It's not even a compliment. It's yeah, the no. way that it's the way that consumers shop. Right. No, I appreciate that. And, and we do, frankly, we do need to, particularly in the states, uh, the the brothers and the family story is something we have heard on occasion. Look, we really should be making that more known. So I think you you have a point there. How are you looking to scale that experiential branding for Parse moving forward? What do you see as far as technology goes, the digital space, or different types of experiential events go? What, what are you thinking? On that side, I think what happens is we, we want to maintain the experiential. Our, our step one is always experiential, and I don't see ever abandoning that. I think it's it's a necessary first step, and it's for anyone having a company doing this kind of thing. I think you want to kind of pressure test what you have, right, and get that going from the beginning. And if it's connecting, then you move into maybe a little more traditional advertising, or or maybe even a billboard. Which for us would be a big move, right? You know what I mean. I'll tell you why. That's what I. That's the kind of work we do, and I would love right. for you to make a case for me I'm going for to. why all you right. would spend all that money on a billboard versus like going on blast all right. and developing social media strategies and, and YouTube. Okay, strategy. well, you're pro- a you're probably right because <laughs> I don't have the expertise that you have. Don't in that. do it. But, but let me tell you something. In Medellin, when you come down from you land at a, a, a Rio Negro airport, which is about a thirty minute drive into Medellin. And it's the most stunningly beautiful drive. You come in and you do these winding curves. And then the city of Medellin opens up. It's like this bowl in the Andes. And you're like 2,000 feet above Medellin. So it's just staggeringly beautiful. And there's only one way to get to Medellin. And there's this billboard space that speaks to everybody coming down that road. And I just have this thing about... You know, someone arrives in Medellin and it's their first time because a lot of, you know, travelers coming there now. It's like you've got that one funnel and it'd be so cool to see that Parse sign of there. Well, it's but, always, but, but it's I think always nice but to have, but you better, buzz, you better, yeah. you got to check I out know. their analytics and say, okay, what are, really get some information on that billboard. Okay. Beyond the ego thing, right? <laughs> Right, and I get because, it because you know what that is an ego journey, oh, I, and I know it is. I know it is. Sorry, is. Clear Channel, but, but, but I ain't buying it. But I'm going to tell you, this is why. We, but we've been in the market for three years, so we're not leading with billboards, and I'm only talking about like a billboard. <laughs> I'm not talking about. But they're you know, expensive. Well, they are. Um, but in this case, I might be able to justify to myself the the case to do it. All right. But we'll see. Now you got me. Now I got to go back and think about You're it some have to more. Think about it. Let's, Thanks, let's, Ginger. Let's, let's talk. All right. Deal. <laughs> you know, um, so Jim, I feel like you are in a second wind space. Yeah. Actually, you know, my plan is just to be open. I don't have, I mean, I have a couple of specific pathways to here and there to pursue, but it's really about just when you're in that mode, you just kind of just listen and check out what's going on and see what you find exciting. And to me, that's in a broader and broader sense than than when I was younger. So it's kind of fun. All right. Well, this was a lot of fun. Yeah, it was great. Um, oh, oh, great. My gosh. No, I enjoyed I it, just, too. You know what? I just had such a ball with you. Cool. But I've always, I've always loved Minty Fresh because... You Such know, a good you're name. You're Minty Fresh to me. You're Mr. Minty Fresh. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> Appreciate it. Thanks for joining us. I'm Esther. I'm Ginger. I'm Jim. And we're the Honest Field Guide. We'll talk to you next time. Esther, that conversation with Jim Powers was fantastic. Yeah, that was great. I mean, the music business is a harsh, brutal business. And Jim has been able to translate all that wonderful work he did and create something completely new, not related to music and you know, he just has so many lessons to share and, and things he's learned and he's still creating. Yeah, he took a total kind of left or right turn, however you want to look at it, to a completely <laughs> different industry with its own challenges and everything like that. So it was really yeah. interesting to see how he was able to bring something as 
out of left field is rum from just an idea with his brothers in Colombia to this thing that's now living and breathing on its own. Were there any points where you disagreed with him at all? Probably, you know, I, I feel like we had a good conversation around his lack of attention on his personal brand and his personal story. I feel like I loved hearing him talk about the things he's created and the communities he's built and the mentoring he's given to other artists. He has a lot of knowledge. He's not sharing it. And so I feel in this age of technology and social media sharing that he's the perfect candidate to model how to do it and to show what longevity as an entrepreneur looks like. You know, I could tell just especially since he was coming from a traditional space that he was still having a hard time justifying the work that it would take to launch something in the personal brand space. Even though when you started kind of arguing back and forth with him, he was like, yeah, you're kind of right. And my wife has been telling me that I should do this. So everyone's facing the same challenge and resistance within themselves, regardless of what scale they're working at. Yeah. And I mean, for someone like him, where he has a lot to offer. But I was encouraged. I feel like um, to know that you can have an early entry into a successful career and have some failures and still continue, you know, to pivot and change and grow and thrive and also be open. I mean, he said, I am open. Yeah. I am looking. I'm, I'm curious. And that's something that I felt. I knew that when I first met him years ago and it's still he's still the same person. So I kind of even though he did not sign us as a band to his label, um, I don't even know why, and it doesn't matter now, but he still gave us something, even though he didn't give us what we wanted. But I look back and realize that he gave us a lot more because that meeting gave me the confidence to know that, you know, I think we're actually on the right track. Keep going. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he he really exudes the type of energy of a person who is um a person who like creates fertile ground for different things to spring from, even if he might not be directly related. So he definitely gives me that that giving energy. And it was great talking to him. So I, I can't wait to see what he continues to do with his rum, rum company and what happens with, with Minty Fresh and hopefully what happens with his personal brand moving forward. The Honest Field Guide podcast is produced by Burke Creative, written and created by Ginger Birkenbuehl and Esther Coro. The podcast is recorded in the innovation and technology capital of the Midwest, Chicago. Original music is written by and provided courtesy of Utah Carroll. Follow Honest Field Guide on Instagram and Twitter. The opinions expressed on the Honest Field Guide are opinions only and only represent the views of Ginger Burke and Buell and Esther Ikoro. E.